Hey guys, for Kyle's safety, he's asked that I record in a separate studio from now on. <laughs> also, there's this thing called the coronavirus. Kyle? Yes, we have been recording remotely for your entertainment. So please remember to wash your hands. Stay home, stay safe, let's save some lives together, and as rule number one should be, don't be an Go home. Stay home. Why are you out? <laughs> Go home. Okay. Stay home. I will keep repeating it until I'm looking at you, John. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Warning, the following podcast contains descriptions of violence against human beings and may contain descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is not suitable for children under the age of 13. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, peons, and welcome back to another episode of Paranormal Guys. I'm Mr. Burns. <laughs> and I'm Kyle. <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. Uh, Who invited Mr. Get out of my chair. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Where are we at, guys? Before Burnsy was here, what, did we start already? Mr. Burns doesn't believe in distancing from anybody. Yeah, I know. I just had to kick him out of my chair. Get out! <laughs> no! I released the hounds. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're so glad to have you here with us for another episode of Paranormal Guys performed at a social distance so that once again, I do not murder Kyle. I'm glad you guys could be here with us. Yes. Well, I don't want to give things away, so we're just going to jump right in. I feel like that was the intro of every Minecraft tutorial ever. All right, boys, let's jump right in. <laughs> I've oh. never watched a Minecraft tutorial, but now I feel like I've seen them all. <laughs> I, I am the oldest. I have a wonderful, intelligent younger brother who loves them. And every time I watch one, I feel like I contract a minor form of cancer. Plug, plug, plug. Watch our episode about Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> we're going to take a little trip back to 1976 we're like going driven. to yeah it, it was a quick quick drive uh the bronx new york 1976 july 29th uh we've got two people donna laria and her friend jody valenti uh they're hanging out discussing the, the events of the evening they'd been out partying drinking doing all the fun things you know as you do yeah yeah it's 1 a.m and Laria was getting in her car to leave when she notices a man quickly approaching. It startled her, and she got angry with the, the guy that was coming at her, and she said, Now what is this? <laughs> I'm sorry, but... Yeah, that, when that I would was be my first reaction. This, now, now what is this? That was the best thing. She, I could just see her just being like, Now what is this? I, I'm um, just as a guy her, comes, like, clutching her pearls. Like, yeah, what is this? He just comes running out of nowhere. I mean, that I feel like that's a response I would have. That's why I think I laughed. <clears throat> uh, um, mine would be, let me see your hands. That would be my <laughs> response. But, you know, right. whatever. I mean, maybe eventually I'll get to that point. But I'd be like, what is this? Um, Can you do that to every perp that, like, does anything to you from now on? 100%. Like, you walk up on a dude with a heroin needle hanging out of one arm with, like, a knife in one hand. Now, what is this? Either that or I'm going to be like, not again. <laughs> Steven, we've gone over this. <laughs> No. All right. Jumping back to the story. Sorry for the tangent there. <clears throat> so she says, now, what is this? The guy then pulls out a pistol from a brown paper paper bag, crouched down, braced himself on one knee and shot three times. Laria was struck by one of the bullets and was killed instantly. 
Valenti was shot in the leg and the third shot missed both of the women. The man then stood and just walked away. Valenti survived the shooting and tried to give the best description of the shooter she could. She reported him as a mid-30s, probably 5'9", around 160 pounds. His hair was dark and curly with a mod style. Uh, and this was repeated by many people who reportedly saw the man uh, because he was seen sitting in a car matching the same description. The yellow compact hmm. car had been seen driving up and down the roads for hours before the shooting. Interesting. So homie rolls up, has enough time, by the way, after she says, now what is this, to like draw down on her. And she, she like, this is New York. She didn't do anything about it. No. Well, I mean, she, Don't New I, Yorkers like kick you in the crotch for looking at them the wrong way. I'm just saying. Well, I think what happened is he was running at her and she it startled her and she probably turned to look and he was crouching down as she said, now, what is this? And then he shot. That just I don't know that it just seems odd to me. But anyway, continue. <laughs> OK, so that was July, October 23rd, 1976. A similar shooting happened in Queens. Uh, Carl Denario, he's 20 years old, and Rosemary Keenan were sitting in Keenan's car parked car when the window suddenly shattered. Denario reported it was like the car just had exploded. Keenan immediately swept away, excuse me, immediately sped away uh, to seek help, not realizing that somebody was shooting at them altogether. Denario reported it felt like the car had exploded. Keenan immediately sped away to seek help, not realizing that it was somebody shooting at them, although Denari was bleeding from a bullet wound to the head. Keenan had superficial injuries due to the shattered glass. Later, Denario needed metal metal plate in his skull to replace the hole where the bullet had made. The police found a 44 caliber rounds in the car. They had been damaged. Mm -hmm. 44? Yeah. He so this dude took a 44 to the head and he was fine? Yep. I mean, he had a hole okay, in his head, but he had a... real quick, a forty-four is one of the largest pistol cartridges. It, it can be chambered in a rifle, like a, like a lever-action rifle. Yeah. Um, it is a big round. Mm -hmm. I, I have a forty-four Magnum. I've shot one. It'll, it'll take a milk carton and turn it into, like, just a flat piece of, like, plastic in, in less than a second. Yeah. The fact that this dude takes a forty-four to the head and he's just cool with it is kind of impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not cool with it. He has a hole in his head and he has to have a metal plate to lock but, out the but hole. the fact that he survived it at all is like, amazing is, is incredible don't worry he's not the first he's not the only survivor <clears throat> um okay so the the bullets that they had found in the car were actually damaged and warped so they really couldn't ultimately determine which kind of gun it came from um but denario had shoulder length hair and they presumed the shooter had mistaken him for a woman at the time of the shooting the investigation became intense because Keenan's father was a 20-year-old veteran for the New York PD. Um, although the shooting was very similar to the Laria killing, the police had not initially made a connection, mainly because they were invest by, investigated by different precincts. Oh, well, I remember reading about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That actually happened quite a bit in the 70s and 80s. Well, and the FBI used to fight with the state state frequent or state places so that they could retain uh, custody of cases too a lot. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Interesting. Little, so a little more than a month later, on November November twenty seventh of nineteen seventy six, Donna DeMassi is sixteen years old, and Joanne Lomino 
is 18 years old. They'd come home late uh, from going to see a movie. They were just kind of hanging out and chatting on the porch of Lamino's home when a man in his early 20s dressed in military fatigues approached them asking for directions. In a high pitched voice, he said, can you tell me how to get? And then he pulled out a revolver, shooting both the victims once. Then they fell to the ground and he shot several more times, hitting the building before running away. Neighbors heard the gunshots and then came out of the building to see a blonde man running away, gripping a pistol in his left hand. Damasi had been shot in the neck, but the wound was not life-threatening. Lomino was shot in the back and later rendered paraplegic. Again, the gun was a forty-four caliber. Yeah, but I mean, like, just side note, that's like my worst nightmare. Like, I've been shot at before. I've actually had bullets miss me close enough I've heard them go past my ear. Like, I'd take a round to the head any day of the week before I'd take one to the spine. That's like got to be yeah. like my worst fear. Seriously. Um, but what's interesting is the eyewitnesses. So this is the third shooting and eyewitnesses are saying that he's in his 20s and he's blonde, where the first case they were saying that he had dark curly hair, but was in his probably 30s. So, I mean, they're kind of getting an array of everything here. So who are they really looking for? A white man, basically. Between his 30s or between his 20s and 30s. Which definitely narrows it right on down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Two months later, January 30th, 1977. In the early morning, Christine Friend and John Dale were sitting in a car and planning on heading to a dance after seeing a movie. Three gunshots hit the car about 1240 a.m. In a panic, Dale drove away. After rendering superficial injuries, Friend had been hit twice and died several hours later in the hospital. Neither victim saw the attacker. The police began making connections between the cases of the killings, and they became public knowledge. All the victims had been shot with 40, 44 caliber and had long, dark hair. Interesting. The, so, he's got it, so he's now forming a type. Yes, absolutely. The original report stated they were looking for multiple aggressors and the police sketch of the eyewitnesses reports were made and released. One with dark hair in his 30s and one with blonde hair in his 20s. So they think at this point it's different people, but they're using the same gun. Which is very why rare for that to be happening in, in that, one though. city. I, I'm just saying, like, why is that the conclusion they're coming to? For me, at least, it doesn't make sense to have multiple killers using the same weapon. That's not a good M.O. Yeah, but think their eyewitnesses. One of them said, oh, he's got dark curly hair and he was in his 30s. My, and then another I, one my says. My immediate thought is 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 blonde wig. That's my immediate thought. Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't go based off of hair color because you have to remember this is happening in the way early hours of the morning, like between midnight and 3 a.m. So fair enough. If someone said dark hair and someone else is saying blonde, I'd probably say it was probably blonde because it was dark and you couldn't really tell what color his hair was. I still think it's a wig, I, like especially if, if there if if the police have moved to it's two shooters with the same gun over it's a wig. I, I just that's ridiculous to me. Yeah. But anyway, continue. So because these killings, I mean, they all have the same MO of 44 caliber it just randomly happens. They're usually sitting in a car or standing outside of their home. And a guy just approaches and shoots them. Um, it becomes a sensation in New York. In fact, everyone is talking about it. Fear just runs rampant through the entire city of New York, mainly the Bronx and Queens. Um, so a couple months later, April 17th, 1977 at 3 a.m., 
Alexander Esau <clears throat> and Valentia Sarani were sitting in Sarani's car in the Bronx, only a few blocks from the Laria Valenti shooting. Each of them were shot twice. Sarani died at the scene and Esau died a few hours later in the hospital. Because of the quick deaths in this case, neither could give a report of the attacker. The same weapon of choice was used in the previous cases, a 44 caliber gun. At the scene of the crime, the mm. police found a letter that was left behind from the killer. It addressed the NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli. In the letter, the killer calls himself for the first time the Son of Sam. Before this, he had he had been called the 44 caliber killer, but the Son of Sam soon replaced the previous name. After a few of the killings, he decided to leave a letter, and this is the same letter where he calls himself the Son of Sam. Zane's now going to go ahead and read that letter for us, word for word. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me back or up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out at ill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everyone else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police, shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way, or you will die. But Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He's had too many heart attacks, too many heart attacks. I love to hunt. Prowling the streets, looking for fair game, mm, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa. Oh, the people of Queens, I love you. I want to wish all of you a happy Easter, and may God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interrupted as bang, 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 bang. You murder Mr. Monster. <laughs> so Sorry, I had know why I'm laughing. That was the best voice for that. <laughs> so the letter was actually written in all caps, except for a few of the letters were randomly in lowercase, which when I, I write in all caps as well. And when I was training myself to write in all caps, every once in a while, my brain would naturally go into a lowercase. It, it was usually E or A, my vowels. Um, so I'm wondering if I he just was talking all caps. That's my solution to the thing. Right. So. So I'm thinking what he was doing is he was trying to hide his handwriting. And that's why he was writing in all caps. Intelligent. I, I think that it was probably, I mean, based on the time frame, it's potential that he was just illiterate. That's that's a possibility. That is a possibility, but I don't think so. Okay. He was actually son of Sam is actually a very, very intelligent person. He like so when I say illiterate, I mean in his writing, the way that he writes is actually oddly poetic. But um I don't know. I, I feel like as far as like handwriting goes, like my dad writes in what looks like Chinese and he grew up here. Like, <laughs> um, 
I, I think it was probably just, it may have been something where he just wrote that way. There's also the distinct possibility, though, that he was trying to cover it up. And if that's the case, that's even more terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Or maybe the son of Sam is a person, a different personality, and that different personality just writes differently. It, it does seem, at least from what I can see here, almost like he does have some level of a split, especially when he refers to himself in the third person multiple times there. That, yeah. that to me, signals something. Yes, for sure. So because this letter was found at the scene of the crime in the newspapers, obviously, he's now called the son of Sam, not the 44 caliber killer anymore. So the police hypothesize that the shooter may have blamed a dark haired nurse for something to do with his father because the letter addressed too many heart attacks and the fact that Laria was a metal technician, a medical technician and Valenti was studying to be a nurse. So they think that he's targeting dark haired nurses or dark haired women because of that. But how would he, he it, these seem like TOAs to me, or TOOs, targets of opportunity. They don't seem coordinated in any way. Why would he shoot at the vehicle if he's targeting the, the nurse inside? Right. But these are just theories. These aren't, they don't okay. have anything really to back it. They're just trying to say that, okay, in the letter he references heart attack. So maybe it's because he's blaming a nurse for that because he's targeting dark haired women, you know? So they're literally just like clutching at straws. They're split. Like yeah. They're kind of just spitballing. What could he, po okay. why would he have this reason to do this? Yeah. Okay. Um, but the police actually received a lot of scrutiny for the letter. Lots of people wanted to give their opinion on what kind of person he, um, he was and who, who, who was doing the killings. Uh, but the police released a profile a month later describing the suspect as neurotic and a paranoid schizophrenic. They believed him to be a victim of demonic possession. What? Are yeah. you kidding? This is the 70s. Wait, wait, wait. This is this is a police force, like a, a quote, professional police force. <laughs> yes. And, and, and they're blaming demons. This is the 70s. People remember, administration? remember, I know we talked about Jay's journal. I know it didn't end up actually being true, but it was the beginning of the satanic yeah, and I'll panic. I'll never forgive you for it, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the beginning of the satanic panic everyone was scared it, oh he's got a dual personality maybe he's possessed you know all i can all i can think of is them in their like boardroom meeting like well they use the 44 he's attacked nurses what if we said satan did it <laughs> maybe he was possessed by the devil you know what? I like it. Let's go with it. Everybody else <laughs> hungry? All right, let's break for lunch. <laughs> exactly. Now, another letter actually comes in, but it wasn't left at a scene of a crime or anything. It actually came into the Daily News. May 30th, 1977, a columnist for the Daily News, Jimmy Breslin, received a letter claiming to be the 44 caliber killer. And Zane will now read this letter as well. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they're washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks of the sidewalk and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that is settled into those cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Laurie. 
And you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't you think that because you haven't heard from me in a while that I went to sleep? No. Rather, I am still here like a spirit roaming the night. Thirsty. Hungry. Seldom stopping to rest. Anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now, the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday. Perhaps I will be blown away by the cops with the smoking 38s. Whatever. If I shall be unfortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you about Sam, if you would like, and I will introduce him to you. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at your next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Mrs. Laria? Thank you. In their blood from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for the use by the NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Inform the detectives working on the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get your butts off. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get the money up. Son of Sam. So underneath the signature was a logo or a sketch combined with several symbols. The police immediately considered July 29th to be a threat. It was also the anniversary of the first Son of Sam killing. A week later, the letter was published with few things redacted from the original publishing uh, that was requested by the police. So Breslin pleaded for the sum of sand to, to surrender himself. The article sold 1.1 million copies and the women in New York all changed their hairstyles to be short. And all the wig shops couldn't keep up with the demand. The people of New York were completely scared. Becky, who does your hair? A serial killer's desires. <laughs> I really want you to start a salon and call it that, please. The son of Sam salon. <laughs> no, I call it the serial killer desire. <laughs> yeah, the serial killer desire is way better. Welcome to serial killer designer. We uh, we make your hair to these serial killer's desires. I think it's funny that they all started cutting their hair. I would have just pulled it up into like a bun. Called it good. If I had that kind of hair, boyo, I'd be wearing it down with <laughs> FU shaved into the back of it. Like, come get me. Bitch. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, well, a month later, after the columnist got the letter, Breslin, June 26th of 1977, Sal Lupo. Hey, real quick question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Was Breslin a communist? No, he was a columnist. Oh, I keep getting the two mixed up. Anyway, continue. <laughs> June 26, 1977, Sal Lupo and Judy Placidio were sitting in a parked car in Queens at about 3 a.m. when three gunshots blasted through the car. Lupo was shot in the right forearm, while Placido was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of the neck. 
Both victims survived their injuries. The young couple had actually been discussing the son of Sam shooting shortly before the gunfire. Neither victim saw the shooter, but eyewitnesses reported a man with dark hair running from the scene. Can you uh, remind me which of the two was male and which one was female real quick? So Lupo uh, is the male and okay. uh, Placidio is the female. So let's see. Placidio was shot in the, in the right. Yeah. Placidio, the female, she was shot in the right temple, okay. the shoulder and the back of the neck and survived. Okay. It's interesting that he he aims for the head clearly. By the way, aiming a 44, especially if it's a magnum, is not easy. Right. Um, but it's interesting to me that he still shoots at the man every single time. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Because he doesn't want any eyewitnesses, that's why. But I well, think sure, but his I mean, main like, target if, if you're being is the shot woman. at from behind, who's going to witness anything? You're going to duck to avoid the gunshots. You're not going to be looking. Yeah, but if you're sitting in a car talking to each other, you're both facing different directions. So if he that's sees true. the guy approaching and shoots the girl from the back, he wants to kill the guy that sees him. That's I guess I can see that. OK, continue. <clears throat> Sorry, I just had, I was curious about who got shot where. That's OK. So that was the 26th. So three days later, it would be the anniversary of the first killing. <clears throat> but and it was quickly approaching and the police were working around the clock to try and catch this guy. On July 31st, so a month later, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert violante both 20 were kissing a violante's car under a street light they were kissing in the car or they were kissing the car <laughs> kissing in the car under a street light that was in bath beach i don't know specifically where bath beach is but i believe it's queens and real quick did stacy's mom have it going on stacy's mom always has it going on yeah she does continue <laughs> <clears throat> so they were making out in the car. They're 20 years old. It's early in the morning. They probably just got finished a date. A man approached them and came about three feet from the vehicle's passenger side. And he shot four rounds into the car, hitting both the victims in the head, running into a near into the park nearby afterward. Violante survived, but lost an eye. But Muskowitz died from the gunshot wounds. Hmm. Cecilia Davis is a local resident and was walking her dog the night of the Muskowitz murder. She saw an officer ticket a car that was parked on the side of the road. Then shortly after, she walked past a man who just stared at her intently, like he had great Stupid. interest in her. And he had a dark object with him. She didn't describe what the object was, just that he had a dark object with him. Now, what you need you know, to remember is... the girl I had that. She didn't believe me. <laughs> what, what you need to remember about him is he hid the gun in a brown paper bag hmm. before and he pulled out and then shoot people so he was so supposedly he was zodiac concealing it the same thing that's like supposedly exactly the modus operandi zodiac used at least from the people that survived interesting i didn't know that um but she noted that he had a dark object with him after that she quickly ran home to get uh, with haste um and as she was heading home she heard gunshots behind her she held on to this information for four days before bringing it to the attention of the police. What? Why? Because she's a crazy old woman. She's not like, <laughs> OK, she has a dog. She doesn't have 50 cats where they all just sit in the window and watch everybody. OK, <laughs> anyway, four days go by and then. Oh, by the way, you know, that serial killer who's on the loose. I um, think I saw him. I saw him. He stared me down and I saw into his dark soul. <clears throat> the police then looked into every ticket that was given that night. 
1970 yellow Ford Galaxy was among these cars that were searched. The car was registered to a David Berkowitz out of Yonkers. Uh, NYPD reached out to the police in Yonkers and asked them to schedule an interview with Berkowitz. They told the investigators they had their own suspicions about him uh, for weird cases that were happening in Yonkers. One of the crimes there was referring to the son of Sam letters. Yonkers investigators told the NYPD that Berkowitz just might be the son of Sam. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> so, so as I was putting together this information, I had um, Mindhunter for, on Netflix going on in the background. And I'm just sitting here typing away and I'm like, Berkowitz. And I look up at the TV and there sits Son of Sam. They were interviewing him on the TV show. And I was like, what the frick? Yeah, I was like, that's not weird at all. How, of all the I'm episodes good. that I, I had on, I'm typing this up. The same time they're interviewing Son of Sam on the TV show. It was crazy. Anyway, continuing on. Continuing on. August 10th, 1977, the police went to Berkowitz's apartment and saw his car outside. They looked in the car and saw a rifle in the back seat, along with maps of the crime scenes and a duffel bag of ammunition. They waited for Berkowitz (laughs) outside his apartment because they didn't want a violent confrontation inside the apartment building. They were also waiting for a search warrant. So they could go into the apartment. It was 10 p.m. when Berkowitz left his apartment, got into his car. And and at that point, they still didn't have a warrant. So the detective approached the vehicle on each side and pulled out their guns and pointed them at Berkowitz. A 44 caliber gun was sitting next to him in the vehicle inside a brown paper bag. Berkowitz stated, well, you got me now that I've got you. Who have I got? You know, I don't know. You tell me. I'm Sam. You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. So the detective uh, was John Philotico, and he was credited by the NYPD for catching the son of Sam. But who is David Berkowitz? Other than the son of Sam. (laughs) And why? the son of Sam. I knew it. And why did he do the killings that he did? So he has a little bit of, honestly, in my opinion, the reason that he did his shootings are so ridiculous that I'm like, he, I think he's not telling the truth, but whatever. So he was born on June 1st of 1953. Um, and he was born into a broken home. His mom, um, was actually having an affair with a married man. And after she had given birth, he told her that she needed to give the baby up for adoption. He said that he didn't want anything to do with her. Um, Mm. she actually was married beforehand and her previous husband left her for somebody else. (laughs) Okay. Kind of a mess. Great men. Yeah. Um, but his original name was the original name that was given to him was Richard David Falcon. Um, and, oh, sorry, excuse me, Falco. And, why she gave him her ex-husband's surname, no one will know. Um, but yeah, after, a few days after she gave birth to him, she gave him up for adoption. Okay. Um, the infant boy was then adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz. They were modest hardware store owners uh, who revered his name, excuse me, reversed his name 
and then gave him their surname. So that's why he is David Richard Berkowitz, but his birth name was Richard David Falco. Okay. So he's got a, he's already got a history of abandonment by women. Is that going to play a role here? Yes. I I think so. But he doesn't actually come out and state it, but I I think so. Okay, hey, real quick. I'm actually going to I'm pulling my video because my phone's about to die. Okay. Um and I'm going to go downstairs. Um If I end actually, mine, you know is that going to end something? What's that? No, you're fine. Nothing. We're good. Okay. Um, go ahead and actually, I think I have enough juice to finish the episode. I just looked at how much we have left in the script. You don't have to rush at all. Yeah. Um, I think, I think if I just turn this off, I will have enough juice to make the end of the episode, but continue. Cool. Okay. So, uh, David had a troubled childhood. <clears throat> he has above average intelligence. See, this is where I told you I, he, he was very smart. Um, okay. and so because he was above average, he started to get bored in school so he starts entertaining himself by committing petty larceny and starting fires. He was defined by relatives and neighbors as a spoiled bully. David's adoptive parents were seeking professional help, although there was no request in school records or legal interventions or anything saying that he needed the help. They just were kind of doing it on their own. Mm-hmm. When, when David was 14, his adoptive mother died of breast cancer. His In his later years... His home life became strained because he didn't like his adoptive father's new wife. And in 1971, at the age of 17, David joined the U.S. Army and was stationed in South Korea. He was honorably discharged in 1973 and found his birth mother. After a few visits with her, she revealed to him his birth details and David became distraught. The news of his birth disturbed him greatly. I don't know, like, if you think about it, yeah, that it, because you were the subject of a an affair doesn't, I don't know how why that would completely destroy his world, but it did. Maybe, maybe he's like, it, it, does it say any, anything about having like very Christian roots or anything like that? Um, I think so. They, I mean, he grew up in a religious home, but I don't know how religious it wasn't like. Because that's the only thing I could think of. Like, I have a friend who his mom had him out of wedlock and, and another friend who was the product of an affair. And either of them are effed up. Yeah, that's well, what I mean. Up, they're my friends, but you know. But he labels it and notes it as the primary crisis of his life and that it completely shattered his identity. I'm like, you were adopted. Did you? I mean, if you were, in my opinion, my dad was adopted. And we've talked about stuff like this before, and he has no desire to find his birth parents because he's like, they gave me up for adoption. Why would I want to go looking for them? I mean, to each their own. But I kind of probably would have the same thing where it's like they they made the decision to give me up. So my parents are my parents that raised me. I I don't know. I don't know why he look at it. I mean, if it was his mother that raised him, I could maybe see it shattering his world. But it's like this is a woman that you have only known for like a few weeks and she tells you your birth story and you're completely shattered by that. You must have a very weak psyche. Well, not to mention the fact that at least in my like my parents didn't even tell me I wasn't adopted till I was 14. So like, I I don't really see how he's how he's got an issue here. But like, for real, if if that's what he cites as his main problem, I guarantee you there's something else. And I think he's intelligent enough to hide it. Absolutely. So he eventually loses contact with his birth mother, but he keeps in contact with his half sister, Rosalind. Um, And then he just kind of has a few dead end jobs or odd end jobs. 
On Christmas Eve of 1975, Berkowitz committed his first crime when he used a hunting knife to stab two women. One of the alleged was not identified, but the other was critically injured. Her name was Michelle Foreman. David Berkowitz was not originally a suspect in this case until later into his killing spree. So I think after he was caught, he pretty much admitted to it because he admitted to a lot of things. In fact, we'll get into By that. writing a letter to the police, though, it seems like he wanted to be caught. He wanted the credit. He wanted the notoriety. Oh, for sure. He did. Um, once he was caught, the police were able to search his apartment. It was a complete disarray. Uh, with satanic graffiti on the walls. They found journals of Berkowitz had kept since he was 21, three journals to be specific. But in all three of the journals, he noted hundreds of arsons that he claimed to have committed throughout all of New York City. Some sources believe this to be upwards of 100, excuse me, 1,400 arson cases. Berkowitz, Interesting. Berkowitz so was, he was also an arsonist. Oh, yeah. He just wanted to cause havoc. And I think he started with arson and it wasn't creating a big enough stir. So he started and then he used a knife to try and, to kill those two women. And then that didn't cause too much of a stir. So then he, what does he move on to guns and just shooting random people? Not to mention that generally speaking, people that use knives are people that feel sexually emasculated. Yeah. Um, so that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah, I could see that because he couldn't have a real relationship with a woman. Anyway, continue. Berkowitz was interviewed for about 30 minutes on August 11th, 1977, where he confessed to all of the killings and the crimes and wanted to plead guilty. He claimed that the neighbor's dog started talking to him and that the dog told him to commit the murders. He claimed that the neighbor's black Labrador dog was possessed by an ancient demon that demanded blood of young girls. Once Berkowitz was able to be interviewed by the media, he alluded to his original claim and said, there are other sons out there. God help the world. Like, all I'm saying is all, all dogs go to heaven. My ass. If the story is true, <laughs> but it's right. Yeah. But what's interesting Someone is he tries to say, Airbud. but what's interesting is he's trying to be like, well, there's other sons out there. I'm the son of Sam, but who all these other sons are out there are killing for blood for their demon dog. Demon their, father, their or whatever they want to call it. Labrador. You know that Labrador was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You called me a good boy. <laughs> On May 8th, 1978, so a year later, or almost a year later, Berkowitz appeared in court to state his plea. While there, he attempted to jump out of the window from the seventh floor. Once he was restrained, he kept chanting, Stacy was a whore. <laughs> and her mom had it going on i'm like why stacy why did you choose stacy of all the people in this story stacy was the one that was the whore i guess um and then he would shout i'd kill again berkowitz was then e examined by a psychiatrist during the evaluation he drew a picture of a man in jail surrounded by four walls at the bottom he wrote i am not well not well at all he was found competent to stand trial regardless. June 20. I, I think all of this is an elaborate act, man. That's, oh, that's for what this sure. All sounds like to me. For sure. On June 28, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life for each of the murders to be served consecutively. Now, something I did see is it says consecutively, but there were other reports that said that he was up for parole at the end of each 25 thing, 25 years but i don't think that actually happened I th i'm sure they just interviewed him and was like uh 
you know, are we going to move you to a better prison? Nope, because you're still a terrible person. Well, not to mention that for multiple murders, there's like, so Kyle understands how consecutive terms work a lot better than I do being in law enforcement. But essentially, like, you know, even even if he did had so, have something where they'd move him, the odds of him having any kind of real freedom between now and the end of his miserable life, slim to none. Yeah. But that was the intention was we're going to try you for each person individual murder, not yeah. what all of them in a whole, which I think is smarter because it gives them more time in prison. Yeah, if they had and done it, it in... also removes the ability for them to ever see the light of day again. Yeah, if they had done it as a whole, he would have gotten 25 years and he'd be out walking the streets again. No, he wouldn't. I would have put 17 rounds in his brain pan. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have been the only one. Um. <laughs> But in February of 1979, Berkowitz declared in a press conference that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax. He admitted to contemplating. Oh, right. Surprising. He admitted to contemplating murders to get revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. He got right. I never saw that coming. So I actually knew didn't know anything about the son of Sam and he was. One of the people that everyone references a lot and it's like, oh, son of Sam, son of Sam. I'm like, I, he was like, I don't know, because Ted Bundy's story is on every channel. That's all I know. You Zac Efron. <laughs> Ted Bundy is seriously the longest story of my life. Every time someone's like, you know who Ted Bundy is? I just want to be like, overplayed like a Taylor Swift song. Seriously, I'm like, if you don't know who Ted Bundy is or anything about him. You've been hiding under a rock for the last 30 years. He is still alive. He's 66 years old. Uh, He's three years from the perfect age. (laughs) 63. Um, He's imprisoned at Shawangunk Correctional Facility. That's like the most Native American sounding facility ever we name you know we the proud heritage of america names it's it's uh people after such great things but anyway <laughs> um i i think that it, what i find most interesting is that he didn't seem to really have a modus operandi so much as he just wanted to murder women yeah he did but he said that he had contemplated murder for a long time so honestly i think he was considering it and thinking about it and then when he came across his mother and she told him about his birth he's like oh my gosh this could totally be my excuse and then he found a reason like that was his reason yeah, is i want to get you. back at the world because i was the subject of an affair and it's like think of all the millions of kids that are out there that are probably subjects of affairs <laughs> like you're not the only one yeah, dude, dude. Calm yourself down, holy warrior. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. Exactly. That's super interesting to me. So anyway. what's your big takeaway from this, Kyle? What, did, what, what was the biggest thing you learned about? Well, what I really wanted to look at was how just something as simple as that could completely disrupt an entire city. And not just any city, but one of the largest cities in the country. I mean, he completely like people cutting their hair off. Keep, people yeah, people are cutting their hair. People their lifestyles. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't stay out late and they wouldn't sit in cars. They'd all make sure they were home. I mean, he he completely changed the beginning of the 70s in New York. That's super spooky. And he was kind of the one that kicked off the serial killer fear like him and Zodiac. Oh, yeah. So he's he's kind of an iconic dude. Mm-hmm. Well, and really the fact spooky. that he was able to get away with it for a year, I mean, he committed how many murders and they were just at random and so it literally could be anybody 
that he gets. And I think that's what the real fear is, is like, it could be you next. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you really want to break it down, he's almost he was almost like a terrorist, completely terrifying the the city. Terrifying. I mean, that's what a terrorist is, is to cause fear and terror wherever they go. They don't want they want people to be scared to go out and about. That's the intention. I think the moral we find here is that I, I don't even think that he was salvageable per se, but I think that the only way that this ends any differently is if he'd been caught sooner. And that's really yeah. scary. There's, there's not a, there's no safety net there. You know what I mean? There's no just in case there there's the son of Sam was out killing people until he got caught by chance. Mm-hmm. And that is what happened. And that's super spooky. And it makes me grateful for forensic work in our modern era, which brings us to a really good point. In our day and age, a lot of people are being exonerated and a lot of people are becoming or are being set free that were, you know, falsely accused. But more importantly, people are being caught. People like the Golden State Killer, people like the I-9 or I-95 Killer. Mm-hmm. People are being caught left and right. And that is my plug for our future episodes because we're going to talk about that. But we live in a time now where forensic science has come a long way and we should be super grateful for that. Yes, for sure. I completely agree. I've been Kyle. Remember to hide your kids and hide your wives. Because there's other Sams out there. To keep up to date on what's happening on the podcast, follow us on Instagram at guysparanormal. Also, if you have any stories you want to share with us, email us at pnormalguys at gmail.com.